electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the critical moment for stocks. A change in Fed policy seems certain in the hours ahead. We'll debate what it means to your money with our investment committee. Find out from them how they're investing right now. With me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown, Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. I'll take you to the wall. I'll show you where stocks currently stand at this hour, a little more than 24 hours ahead of that big Fed decision. There you go. We're down across the board. Dow's down 160, a loss of nearly one half of 1%. S&P down by more than 1%. NASDAQ getting hit a little bit harder than everything else, approaching a 300-point decline, what could end up being a 2% decline. We'll have to watch that, the 10-year note yield at one four three percent all right let's kick it off with the gang farmer jim i go to you first you've been mr all in are we at a crossroads for stocks today simple answer is yes um and i think what you define that crossroads as scott is that the fed is clearly going to become less supportive uh today's ppi number uh just continues the trend of inflation being much higher than expectations so now we're not only talking about the taper being accelerated this week we're talking about much sooner rate hikes next year than was expected just a few months ago that does have the market on edge it's something that the market will adjust to but what we need to expect going forward is higher volatility we've lived in such a benevolent regime for the last 14, 18 months. It's been 18 months since the S&P 500 touched its 200-day moving average. And that's just an indication of low volatility that is likely to reverse, but uh, returns are also likely to be positive. So buckle your seatbelts. One interesting cross-current today, Scott, is that energy and financials are actually accelerating today. And that's in the face of a very red tape. Um, It's a sign that maybe the market is saying the Fed won't kill growth by these accelerated taper and the uh, sooner than expected rate hikes. wonder if the question then becomes, Pete, is the Fed, if it doesn't kill growth, is it going to kill this rally? Is it going to put an end to this conversation about, well, the S&P is only 3% away from a new record high? Are we at the crossroads that we suggest at the top of the program? I think we're at a crossroads, but I don't know necessarily, Scott, that it has to kill what this what we've seen in terms of this incredible move to the upside. But it certainly is going to change how people are viewing things. And that's something that we've been dealing with for a while now is we talk about rotation all the time. It's going to be a rotation. Jim was just talking about the fact that you look at energy, you look at financials actually doing reasonably well, particularly against the rest of the sectors that are getting hit. Technology being the worst, absolutely getting pummeled again today, including the quality names on the top of the of, of the Nasdaq world of Apple and Microsoft and all of those kinds of names. So, you know, I, I think that we are finding ourselves in a position right now with the Fed. Everybody's very nervous about it. Jim, the one thing I would push back on is 
Sustained volatility well over 20 or even, even anything over 30 is very, very rare for that to be a sustained period of time. We might be a little bit more volatile, but I, I, would, I would also say I think we are going to see that volatility pop once in a while, just like we just did. I mean, look at the velocity of this most recent move. We went from the 35 or thereabouts on the highs of the volatility index all the way down to 19 in just a couple of weeks. And here we are now once again at 22. It's difficult for the market to move what the way it's expected to move based on volatility. It's difficult for the market to do that for any sustained period of time because you're talking about are we going to really move one and a half and two percent every single day? Most likely not. That's why I think we're going to see volatility pop once in a while, spike once in a while, but probably fall back as well. So, Josh Brown, tomorrow afternoon, Fed's going to speak, likely going to be a change in policy for the first time in a long time. How's the market going to handle it? I'm not 100 percent sure how I how I feel the market will handle it, but I disagree with a lot of what's been said so far on the show. Um, I do not think that we're necessarily going to get this acceleration in, in Fed hikes. I actually think that this is the month, these November readings, where inflation has peaked. So I actually think we have seen the absolute worst of the supply shocks and their impact on prices throughout the economy right now. Like we've seen it. It's a classic blow off top, in my opinion. We won't know this for sure. I won't be able to declare victory until a few months have passed with more benign readings. But this is it. You're going to see inventories start to be flooded in the first quarter of next year, which is a whole different type of risk. You're going to see semiconductor uh, shipments explode. You're going to see supply of cars and, and trucks explode. And I also think that while the wage gains we've seen will stick, those actually are the right type of inflation. That's what we've been waiting for for 20 some odd years. People in the bottom two uh, quartiles of the income distribution finally have seen a catch up. And I think that that acceleration in wages is also going to slow down. It won't go into reverse. These wages are now here to stay. However, I believe on balance, they're actually good for the economy. So now the risk to me is different than, oh, no, the Fed's going to rip rates up to 2%. They, don't, they can't do that. They already tried that a couple of years ago. It didn't work. They, they inverted the yield curve. So I don't think the Fed's going to be in any rush. I think the taper, as I've been saying for nine months now, when it comes, will be felt like a relief. If you look at the surveys of what small business owners are saying, they want an end. They want an end to the $90 billion every month coming into uh, uh, the economy. They're not looking for more stimulus. They're looking for more stability in prices. And I think what's so interesting about this situation now, uh, different than every other past episode we've ever been through, is how reliant the economy is on the stock market. It used to basically be house prices, but now it's the stock market too. The stock market has never been more important, both to the decisions being made for spending at large corporations to the way the average person on the street feels about their future. And so we've got a little bit of a self-correcting mechanism. If the stock market is cooling off, and clearly it has been, beneath the surface of the fangs, Mm -hmm. there's been substantial damage in the stocks people own. If, in fact, that's the case, then inflation and the the rate at which consumers are consuming should also calm down. And that's the setup going into January post-holidays. Everybody cools off, prices cool off, and the Fed is not under the same type of pressure from headlines as everyone's extrapolating right now. We all need to take a deep breath. Steph, 
what the Fed does may certainly change the way we invest. It may change where we invest in terms of different sectors, different kinds of stocks. Jim Cramer today suggests you want to buy companies that, quote, do stuff or make things. Do you see it the same way? Yeah, I mean, I agree with him for sure. But look, this is the most anticipated FOMC meeting. I just wanted to, to get it behind us, right? Um, and just to get it over with. Um, and everybody expects the taper to increase to 30 billion from 15 billion. That came out two weeks ago, actually, the rumors. Um, if you step back for half of a minute, they're tapering because they can. The economy has healed. Unemployment is at 4.2 percent. Initial claims are back to levels not seen since 1969. We talk about ISM services, manufacturing at record highs. GDP is going to grow 9 percent this quarter alone. And inflation is hot. So they should be tapering. I am of the mindset that they're going to taper. And maybe it gets done in, in, in March, which is sooner than expected. But then I think they're going to wait. And they're going to wait because they're going to look at the economy and the data points that come into Josh's point. We know the challenges for 2022 are really that growth is going to slow. But by how much? We know, I think, inflation is going to slow. But by how much? I still very much believe it's going to stay elevated because of rents and wages. And I think growth is going to stay above trend, maybe 4 percent, 3, 4 percent. That's above trend, though. That's pretty darn good. So where I'm investing is really where I've been. I'm looking at economically sensitive stocks. I'm looking at value stocks even more so. Do you look at the Russell 1000 growth? It's down almost 200 basis points today alone versus the Russell 1000 value, which is only down 16 bips. So there's a big rotation happening. And so why I've always said you want to own a barbell is because it's impossible to time. This has been the year of the rotation and it's going to continue into next year. But again, if you think like I do, above trend growth, above trend inflation, you want to own more economic economically sensitive companies, um, I think financial, certainly. I'm not sure about commodities, because if the Fed does raise rates, that the dollar is going to go higher, and that's going to be hard for commodities. Okay. You've heard from the committee. Now let's hear from our headline guest. He's been calling for a serious correction in stocks for many months, even as the S&P 500 hit new highs and stands within 3% of another new high. Where does he stand now? Let's welcome in Mike Wilson. He's the chief U.S. equity strategist and chief investment officer at Morgan Stanley. Welcome back. It's good to see you again. I'm glad you're back. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I want to go through some of the history here. Your note from September 20th was the day before you were last on with us. Much talked about. We focused on it here. Quote, will it be fire or ice, you ask? We don't know, but the ice scenario sounds would be much worse for markets, and we're leaning in that direction. Ice would be a 20 percent correction, a, quote, more destructive outcome. Obviously, that never materialized. October 18th, with the S&P up 3% since then, you were still calling for a big decline in stocks, Mike, but you started to acknowledge, I feel, that your call was looking a little bit shaky. Quote, alive and kicking, retail proves resilient and buys the dip once again, forcing many institutional investors who share our fundamental views to cover and chase. What I feel like a bigger pivot came but a week later, October 25th. You seem to throw in the towel on any near-term correction. Quote, equity markets may remain well-bid in the near-term. Seasonal strength and strong equity inflows from retail and other passive investors are keeping the equity markets aloft. And then finally, on November 8th, it appears to us that you all but admit, Mike, that your call was wrong. Quote, we've been surprised once again at the magnitude and speed of the move higher. As we approach our bull case target of 4,800, we ask what is driving it and how long it will continue. I note that since September 21st, the S&P is up 
7%. And as I said at the outset, we sit only 3% from highs. It feels like you've been chasing your own predictions, Mike. <laughs> well, that was a great book report. So I'm glad you're reading our, uh, our research. Uh, look, I think that it's pretty clear. Uh, the fire and ice narrative that we laid out back in September is what's happening. The ice portion has not happened, but the fire is happening. That's, that, was the, that was the crux of our call in September and the crux of our year ahead outlook on November 15th was that inflation, which you know was running hot and the Fed was going to have to respond to that. And that's exactly what's happening. So, so look, the, the key call for us is that valuations are just coming down. And we made that call back in, in March and April of this year. We said we call it the mid-cycle transition. It was going to be a rolling correction. And that's kind of what's happened. And we've navigated it really well under the surface. And the S&P has been very resilient. And that's what those comments were in October and November, was that we had strong seasonal strength. We had incredible retail flows. We suggested that we could rally into Thanksgiving, maybe a little beyond that. But that you know, as you approach 4,800, the risk-reward was really poor. And I think that's sort of what's going on now. We're, we're seeing, you know, the, the real leadership names, the large cap names are now starting to kind of fall by the wayside, which is exactly what happened in 2018. The last time we had sort of that rolling correction idea, we call it the same thing back then. And it always ends the same way, Scott. It ends with, you know, the bastions of safety finally taking a hit. So, look, what are investors supposed to do right now? Well, first of all, they shouldn't be, you know, risked up. Okay, this the risk reward has not been particularly great since September. And that's the damage that's under the surface that Josh was you know, correctly uh, citing. You know, small cap stocks, lower quality parts of the market, all the areas that we've been underweight have been underperforming. And the things that have been working is large cap quality. Now what's changing today, I think, and this is something we've been talking about for the last couple of months, is that we're moving away from large cap quality growth to large cap quality defensive, okay? And that's a big shift. And that's that's what we're seeing in the last week and a half or so. So what is the market? What, what is the market thinking now? Well, now we're talking about the ice scenario. And that's something else we, we wrote about back in October. We said the ice scenario has been put off, but it hasn't been eliminated. And that's going to be the slowdown that Josh was also referring to in the first and second quarter of next year, which is that we're going to get gobs of inventory now. Now we're going to get the supply is going to catch up. And I actually agree with Josh's comment. We're probably seeing a peak rate of change in the inflation measures. They're still going to be high, right? It's still going to be intolerable for the Fed, meaning 4% inflation is not a level they're comfortable with. So, but they're going to come down because supply is going to pick up. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves as investors now is, is that going to create an earnings problem for a lot of companies that people are not expecting earnings problems from? Because look what's happened. Companies have expedited supply. They've, they've hired a bunch of labor at higher prices. And if there's a, and if there's excess supply now in the first or second quarter, potentially temporarily, that could lead to margin compression. So we'll see how that plays out. We're not we're not sure about the ice scenario, how icy it's going to get. But the fire part of our narrative is is definitely in gear. And we're highly convicted in the multiples coming down, which is why we reiterated that in our year head outlook on November 15th. Sure. But if, if you suggested in September, which is, you know, three months ago already, that the ice scenario is more likely of a 20% pullback, and we simply haven't had it. I mean, if you, every time you're on, continue to say we're going to have a correction, and then, uh, you know, the next time we're going to have a correction, and then the next time we're going to have a correction, or your notes suggest that, um, eventually you're going to be right. But that's not necessarily fair to investors. Well, I mean, 
first of all, we 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 said back in October that the that the correction wasn't going to happen. So we acknowledged that we were incorrect about that. Okay, we're big we're big boys. We can we can face the fact that we're wrong. We're not right all the time. We get that. Okay, but the the risk reward was poor. Okay, the risk reward has been very poor really since the middle of October, early really early November, and we've navigated that well with our you know focus list. That's how we're adding value to clients. We're 300 basis points ahead of the S&P 500 with our focus list. And that's our job, is to be in the right places within the market sky, okay? The index is just one part of what we're trying to do for clients. What we're doing for clients is getting them in the right parts of the market, which is, you know, exhibited by the performance of our focus list. The other, I guess, I don't necessarily know if I want to call it an issue that that I I would have or want to discuss with you, is this notion of mid-cycle and why you think we're in a mid-cycle rather than about to embark on, on a real early cycle, that we still haven't had the fruits of a full recovery. We still haven't been able to fully reopen, and here we are once again worried about the Omicron variant. And that once we can get past that, and that once we can rip the Band-Aid off and the Fed can taper and the market can go through the gyrations that it's going to go through, and then we can really have a boom. We have a real cycle, the boom that we never were really able to have. Why are you so convinced that's not the more likely scenario and we're in a mid-cycle, as you suggest? Yeah, I mean, I think the chance of us being early cycle is, is virtually zero just based on where the unemployment rate is, right? So, I mean, we're basically at 4.2% unemployment. So you, you can't credibly claim that we're early cycle when employment is, is almost at full employment. Now, maybe participation rate picks up and we can find some slack out there, but it's clearly mid. I would say there's a better chance that we're closer to late cycle than there is that we're an early cycle, just based on the on the metrics on the economic metrics, which don't reflect early cycle behavior at all. I mean, that, that, that's my view. So you expect the Fed to taper faster than the market expects, and thus to begin tightening much faster than we all expect as well. Is is that the crux of your thesis moving ahead into 2022? That's part of it. Um, we don't expect to be faster, by the way. We're right in line with consensus on the tapering. Um, the thing, the reason why we thought, well, we thought that t- the tapering would be tightening for markets, if not the economy, is the following reason. They are going faster on this taper schedule than they did last time. Last time it took them 10 months to end QE. This time they're proposing, well, we don't know officially, but we think, and I think everybody agrees, they're going to guide to four and a half months to be done with this you know, QE program. That's much faster. Okay. And that's going to have a negative impact on M2 growth, which is highly correlated to stock valuations. The second thing I would say is that valuation starting point is much higher today at 20 to 21 times forward versus 14 to 15 times back in 2013 and 14. And the third thing that's a change or different from that period is that growth is decelerating. Growth was accelerating in 13 and 14. So that makes the case for lower valuations pretty easy. And, and look, it's happening, Scott. I mean, you know, you'd have to be, you know, basically under a rock not to see that stocks are being derated significantly. All right. Now, I'll throw out a statistic here. Seventy seven percent of the Russell 2000 okay, is down more than 20 percent from its high. Mm-hmm. That's the max drawdown. Mm-hmm. 37% for the S&P 500 and 52% for the NASDAQ 100, okay? That's the derating process. Valuations are coming down, and we just don't think it's over yet. But, you know, it'll eventually be over. 
and then we can move forward. So and, and that doesn't mean you can't own anything either. It means you can own things that have earning stability that are going to deliver on the goods and earnings and have reasonable valuations. And that's how we've been set up for the last three or four months look, in our focus list. And it's, that's why it's outperforming. Look, you you have been dead right for many, many months about the what you called. And I think we all have begun calling and maybe in large part because of you a rolling correction under the surface. Right. And what you expected to happen was that a rolling correction would eventually hit the fang stocks. And that was going to be the the, the straw that that broke the, the market that would cause the correction to be more deeper than just, you know, under the surface, all those stocks that were down 20 percent off of its highs. Did did you did you get that part of it wrong? Are you surprised that the largest stocks in the Nasdaq have been able to carry the largest amount of weight and thus keep the market from having the magnitude of the correction that you were looking for? Because, look, only a couple of days ago, if not yesterday, we're talking about Apple nearing $3 trillion in market cap. You would have to believe that those would be the stocks that would have to do a full rollover if your ICE scenario would have been realized. Absolutely. And, and that's where we admitted that we were dead wrong, right? The S&P did not have the 10 to 20 percent correction because, you know, it, part of it was rotating around. So, you know, the market did a good job of finding new things to, to buy. And those, you know, 10 or 15 stocks have just been, you know, incredibly resilient. And that's what we missed. OK, so, you know, we're wrong. We're wrong about that. Um, and, and, and what we try to do is, you know, make money in other ways, uh, understand that that call is wrong. And pointing out today that I don't think we're out of the woods on that because, you know, the tapering situation may accelerate some derating, even in those highest quality areas that people have been hiding. We'll see how that goes. You know, do, do people need to worry about that so much? Not really. I think people need to focus on is they make sure what they own in their portfolios aren't egregiously valued, and they can deliver on the earnings growth in the first half of next year when some of these you know operational challenges you know maybe get a little tougher. That's the focus right now. I mean, I think it surprised a lot of people the defensive nature and how powerful it it is and has been for the Apples and the Microsofts and those kinds of stocks that haven't had the dramatic pullback, the likes of which some of those, you know, high flying price to sales stocks, those software names. So, I mean, what if that continues, that people just continue to find those as ports in a developing storm? Absolutely. And, and look, those names are defensive. I mean, not all of them, but, the, the, you know, some of the names you mentioned have characteristics of being defensive and able to deliver earnings in any kind of an environment. And that's why they are so revered uh, by the marketplace. But even within that group, uh, in the last week and a half, some of those are starting to fall by the wayside. So, you know, I'm not going to name names, um, but specifically you can see like it's even that group of stocks is getting narrower. So that's where we are. And how this plays out in the final innings of this derating process, I mean, that's why we tune in every day. We'll see how it goes. Right For now, sure. <laughs> we're trying to focus in on where we think we can make money in a lower risk way. And, and that's how we're going to be set up until we feel like it's time to flip the other way. Let me ask you finally, before I let you go, and I'm looking at your targets for next year, your base case is 4,400. That represents a 6% decline from where we are now. Not a terribly large uh, degree of pullback, obviously. What gets to your bull case though of 5,000, which is a 7% increase? What, what has to fall in place for you to say we can hit, we can hit that? 
Yeah, we tried to address that in our note this week, Scott. We, we kind of went through you know the different scenarios because we do have a wide range of outcomes for next year. 3,900 is the bear case, 5,000 is the bull case. You know, so it's like you could drive a truck through that and two trucks. And, and so you know, that, that the reason why we have such a wide range is because the economic and earnings outcomes, we think, is a very wide range of outcomes. We went through that as well. The bull case is Goldilocks. Okay, that is the bull case. Um, and what that represents is that inflation comes down nicely, as Josh, you know, sort of talked about, but it's not in a disorderly way, meaning it doesn't lead to margin compression. And the Fed can maybe back off a little bit on the pace of its rate hikes, if not the tapering schedule. And that allows multiples to remain elevated at 20 to 21 times. Okay, we, we don't, that's not our base case, but that is the bull case. And it's very possible. I mean, it absolutely can sure. happen. We don't we can't tell the future. Well, let me let me do this. Since you since you mentioned Josh, and, and it really feels like your bull case view is simpatico with the the way he articulated his own view. Um, Josh, you want to in on the conversation as well before we wrap it up? I'll, I'll introduce you to Mike Wilson. Yeah, Mike. The uh, to me the 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 nuance here that so many people are struggling with, including the Fed itself, is how much of this gets cured by the supply shocks going away versus how much of this remains um, and not only sticky, but continues to increase. And I would say that I'm probably neutral on the second part of that, but I've never been more certain of anything that the supply side of that has peaked, is in the process of peaking, and is now going to become a whole different animal next year. Your report cites this phenomenon of double ordering. We're going to find out in January or February how many people were just ordering and ordering and ordering, not even expecting to get filled on shipments. And then when they do, all of a sudden discounting comes back. You could certainly see that at, at the apparel retailers, which you consider to be over uh, over earning, uh, for example. So can you talk about that phenomenon and that that, in fact, might be a market shock that nobody is prepared for? Yeah, that's the, exactly the ICE scenario, which would make the, you know, the, the derating and the pullback worse because you'd have more earnings misses. And I think it's obvious where the risk of that is greatest. It's in consumer goods where things were overconsumed and then double ordered because it couldn't get supply. You know, one of the things we wrote about in our note this past week is we've shown that there's a lot of shadow inventory out there, right? Wholesale inventory is at a record high. It's exploded, but retail inventories remain low because of logistical constraints. And Look, I'm optimistic. It sounds like you are too. Our analysts are telling me the same thing. Supply is getting better. Okay. Well, that, you know, be careful what you wish for. Because if you get supply at the wrong time of the year or when demand is sort of softer, not, you know, recession, but softer, then there'll be that discounting that you, that you talked about. So I think we'll see that in various pockets of the economy, areas where we've overconsumed, where there have been supply constraints, where it's now visible we're going to get that supply probably at the wrong time. And, and we'll get through it. It'll be a one to two quarter adjustment. This isn't the end of the world. OK, but, you know, just like we over earned, there might be a period where we under earn a little bit. And that's the ice scenario to a T. I say it every time and I truly mean it. And I hope you know that I love having you on this program. I always enjoy the conversation. And if nothing else, you know that I read your research. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> Great to see you. All right. That's Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. Let's bring in Steve Leisman now. He's got the results of our latest CNBC survey for the Fed. They play into this conversation um, specifically. So, Steve, we're expecting action tomorrow. It's going to be a change, but it's more dramatic action in the not-too-distant future that maybe uh, we weren't expecting. 
Yeah, I mean, it was. it's unclear. I mean, it sounds like, listening to some folks on your panel, Scott, that nobody expected the Fed to ever raise rates. I'm not quite sure well, what would the you, expectation was. Would you fault was, them, Steve? Or would, would you fault them? Yeah, I would, Scott. I mean, that was never a realistic standpoint. I know, but you know I what I'm saying. I think, let me show you the Fed expectations chart, Scott, and then we can sort of bounce off of that. Um, the 30 billion that's baked into our survey. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing that's baked in is, uh, June 2022. Some, some tolerance around that. Some guys are more September, but that's the big change, right? So the market had been expecting a December 2022 rate hike. And now three are priced in two and a half this year, uh, next year, three the year after that, whatever you want to call it, three in each of the next two years, bring it up to one and a half percent by the end of 2023. And there's the estimated, the highly controversial terminal rate where the Fed will stop at 2.3%. So, you know, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to think, like, even if inflation was 2% or 3%, this doesn't seem that hawkish an outlook to me. I don't think that uh, you're, you're talking about massive uh, uh, tightening. You are moving things up by six months, but the Fed is still doing, I think, what it otherwise would have done just a little earlier. Let me ask you this question, because Josh raised it, and I thought it was an outstanding point, and it's perfect to, to bump off of you. Um, where he suggested that the stock market is more important than ever to the economy. And thus, when we feel like the Fed sometimes makes decisions with the stock market in mind, perhaps we can understand why if we look at the bigger picture, which is why I'm curious as, how, as to how you think they think today about how their moves and their change in policy could impact the stock market, which could have bigger impacts to the economy they want to keep growing. Yeah, I heard that, and, and, and my right eyebrow started to go up, and I, of course, want to pay special attention to anything Josh says. He's a, uh, a closet macroeconomist. You will never admit it, Scott, as you know. But the, the point is this. Um, it is very important. It's very important to the market, but I think that it's only important to a point, which is that uh, it, has, it does generate tremendous wealth, but the Fed will be careful and needs to be careful that it's not the driver right now Inflation is the driver of, of Federal Reserve policy, not the stock market. And I think the Fed is willing to step back and let the market adjust where it needs to go in order to get control of inflation. And the big question, Scott, I want to leave you with this one point, which is the growth forecasts for next year are still quite good. We're getting 4% is the estimate for 2023 and then 3% for for 2022 and 3% for 2023. Those are both decent forecasts. Right now, what we're looking at is a world with high inflation, but good growth with on the unemployment rate still coming down. It's still a pretty good uh, investment outlook to me or investment atmosphere. And I don't think the Fed's going to fret too much if you're going to lose a couple points on the price earnings ratio. That's not going to be what's going to drive policy. A big move would. Well, let me lastly ask you to react before I let you go to Wilfred's great interview yesterday with Gorman. And I'm sure you, you saw it. Um, where he suggested, look, I mean, let's, let's, get, let's get it on already, right? The Fed needs to act now. We're so many rate increases away from you know, normalization that they better have some tools in the toolbox or ammo back in, in the, the chamber when they really are, yeah. are going to need it. Um, do you think that's a prevailing view among Fed officials? Yeah, I, I, I think the Fed wants to have some arrows in the quiver, so to speak. But it would not necessarily, you know, what do you want to say, burn down the forest to get those arrows, so to speak. I don't, I don't think that's the way it would work. It, it, it wants it, it would get the, it would prefer it. 
But look, um, you know, the idea that the Fed, Gorman was talking about this, is ridiculously late. I, I think that's overstating the, if you look at the tail of inflation, Scott, we started to get, we were still at like one and a half, two percent in February of this year. Then in March, uh, the Biden administration and Congress passed the $1.9 trillion. Should it have moved then or closer then? Sure. I thought it should have moved in the summer. I think the Fed is two, three months behind where it ought to be right now. It ought to have probably begun the taper September. Instead, it started November. Now it's going to accelerate it, pretty much making up for where it should be. And then it'll bring those rate hikes forward. So we could be okay here, Scott, in a decent atmosphere. But I think Wilson has a good point that Watch your watch. Watch the multiples. What yeah. is the multiple with a Fed that returns more than normal? And, and let me let me be clear in the way that I was paraphrasing, paraphrasing um, James Gorman in my question to you. Um, he was more suggesting that the Fed start early with its increases rather than suggesting that they're um, incredibly late, as I may have of incorrectly paraphrased. So I just want to make sure we're 100 percent clear on that. So I just don't want to misrepresent what he exactly said. It's just that there's this prevailing idea that the Fed is very, very late. I just think, you know, the Fed can't, in response to a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, right away increase rates in response to that. That's not the way things work. You need to see what happens, how long it takes and everything like that and see how people respond. And I think the other aspect, which is that, oh, who was betting that uh, all, all of these supply chain things would not go away, that there'd be ships and we wouldn't be able to get them unloaded. That's a pretty uh, unusual uh, occurrence. And I think they're going to get these ships unloaded. I think Josh has a bit of this right, and I think Steph as well, that they're going to solve that part of the problem. Where I'm more concerned is the wage side of things. I think y- y- you have two supply issues. One is the ships. The other is people. And I'm not sure what's going to happen getting people back into the workforce. Sure, which the people side is probably why the transitory being retired yeah. comment was made more than, right. more than anything else. Right. Steve, we'll talk to you, I'm, I'm sure. We'll see you again tomorrow. That's Steve Leesman, senior economics reporter. Up next, betting on the consumer. Goldman Sachs has its favorite restaurant stocks for next year. I also see on my list today, Pete Nigerian is buying more. Ooh, can't tell you yet. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The death toll from tornadoes in Kentucky remains unchanged at 74. Governor Andy Bashir says that more than 100 people are still missing. Bashir also said that the owners of that candle factory where eight people died believe they have located all of their other workers. The Washington, D.C. attorney general is suing the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers over their involvement in the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. He accuses them of planning an attack and seeking to prevent members of Congress from declaring Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 presidential election. And the COVID vaccination rate in Africa may not hit 70 percent until late 2024. It's currently below 8 percent. This all according to the World Health Organization. Some developed countries, but not the U.S., have already hit that 70 percent level. The WHO also reporting that Africa is seeing its fastest surge in COVID cases this year. New infections, Scott, are up 83% over the last week. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate that very much, Rahel Solomon. All right, let's talk about some moves. Pete Najarian, I teased what you were doing before the break, and now it is time. Because your brother (laughs) yesterday mentioned that he was seeing an enormous amount of call buying in Apple. Mm -hmm. You obviously see the same thing, considering you guys have the same firm. I do. And make some of the same moves. So you bought more Apple sometimes, calls. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes. It's important sometimes. Yes. You don't yeah. always like him. Yeah. I'm not trying to suggest yeah. that you always like him. I mean, your <laughs> brothers, after all. I do some, not always like him. Sometimes stuff happens. I mean, I have a brother. I understand. Right. right? But you bought more I, Apple I, calls. I, you get it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Scott, it's just amazing how every single day, it seems like, of the week, we continue to see Apple calls, including today. Just as we're sitting here and I was listening to Steve Leisman. A buyer of Apple calls came in again, 15,000 of these December 23rd, 177 and a half calls. It's just a daily thing that we are seeing with Apple and they continue to come. Now, I'm okay with the fact that the stock has pulled back. Obviously, yesterday with that big run up to 182, it pulled back and today it's nearly 172 or wherever it is trading. But they have been so right so consistently that I, of course, am going to try to follow along with that as well. So, It gives me the opportunity at least to look and see, and maybe if the stock does pull back, I can jump in. I have not grabbed these particular strikes yet, but it's something I'm definitely looking at. I've got multiple different positions right now in Apple that go all the way out to January. So I just, uh, as long as they continue to buy and they continue to be right, Scott, I'm going to be riding along with them. So I've already got the stock, and I've been adding all these calls. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it it, it also just speaks to, as I was discussing with Mike Wilson, the ability of, of Apple, yeah. maybe more than anything else, to be so incredibly resilient, Pete, um, in the face mm-hmm. of some turmoil, yeah. to just be able to march towards new record highs, new record highs, even when there's no legitimate fundamental reason at stake uh, right. at the particular time. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I remember a lot of people were getting very nervous when the stock was just pausing, Scott. You know, a couple of months ago it was pausing and, that you know, everybody said, ah, Apple's not participating, not participating at all. There are other names that are pulling the market up. That is what Apple has been doing now for the last decades is it makes big runs to the upside. We see a plateau for a while and then the next leg starts to move to the upside. And that's that's just been the historic way in which Apple has been trading. So I wasn't overly concerned, as, as hopefully you remember, uh, throughout this year mm-hmm. when we've had those pauses. Eventually, something's going to be the trigger. Something's going to be the, uh, the catalyst that's going to push it to the upside. But I'll tell you, uh, when, I, when I look each and every day, like, for instance, yesterday, they traded 3.2 million contracts in Apple alone, 70% of which were calls. So that just gives you a little bit of an idea. The next closest is 1.5 million with Ford and a million 
uh, with Tesla. So that gives you an idea of just how active it is in Apple on a daily basis. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Let's do some calls of the day now. And, and Steph, Goldman Sachs has named McDonald's among the restaurant stocks that it puts at its t- top 22 ideas. Uh, everything's reiterated to buy McDonald's, Starbucks, Shake Shack, Chipotle. McDonald's, though, to you first. There it is. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a good stock, up 22% to get a 2% yield. Um, it's not cheap, Scott. It's at 27 times forward, but it's steady. It's stable. It acts like a staple. So for me, you know I have a lot of juice in my portfolio. I've got a lot of cyclicals. This kind of offsets it. But they've done a great job in terms of menu simplification, drive-through momentum, digital investing, and delivery options. And so they have $4.3 billion in cash. They actually reinstituted their buyback. They increased their dividend 4%, exactly what you want this stock to do and this company to do. So I'm going to continue to hold it for uh, 2022. Okay. Uh, Starbucks, Jim Labenthal, you're up with that one. Yeah. You know, I think I've said this before as an equity portfolio manager holding about 25 stocks. There are five that are in the bottom quintile in terms of being my favorites. I don't love all my children equally, at least not in my business. Um, They had a very bad quarter with bad guidance going forward. I need to see guidance, particularly in China, improve on the next quarterly report or I will be gone from the stock. Now, what I'm looking for from the stock is some good guidance and that and that in the next year, it basically does just a little bit better than the S&P 500. I'm not looking for shoot the lights out here. Um, they need to get their China operations on. Track. Josh, give me a comment on this. This is Jim Labenthal. This is the farmer getting mad. This is him mad <laughs> right right there. He's like, it is Starbucks is on thin ice, folks. And if it doesn't come through with better guidance, right. I'm out. I just I I don't I don't have that concentrated of a portfolio, so. I don't need performance from every one of my names. I, I don't have to backhand slap uh, the, the, the holdings when they don't cooperate with <laughs> well, me I mean, over short agree, periods of time. Do, let me put it this uh, way. Do you agree with Goldman? I own Starbucks. Do you, do you agree with, I know you do. Do you agree with the Goldman side saying, hey, this is one of our top picks? Or do you, are you leaning more towards Jim who says, well, I don't think it should be a top pick and it's kind of on thin ice? I don't know if it's, I don't, I agree with Jim. I don't know that it should be a top pick, um, but. Like, let me holler at you because this stock's up 83% in the last three years, and that includes the worst pandemic in a century. So, like, I feel like they're doing okay. Mm -hmm. Shake Shack's up 55% in the last three years. They sell burgers. They They don't sell the cure for COVID. That stock's hung in there through probably the toughest environment it will ever have seen. Was 2021 a great year for these stocks? No, but that's okay. If you're an investor, not it. Like if you own any business, every year can't be the best year. So I'm in Starbucks. No plans to do anything. I accept that there'll be a quarter or two each year that that disappoints. If it gets out of hand and there's a real problem with the business, I'll change my mind. That hasn't happened with this name in 25 years. The only business that I know of that can be the best year every year is the New England Patriots. Oh, (laughs) somehow. Somehow. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. Up next, Pete's latest trades and unusual activity. And later today, we have a CNBC exclusive. Wilfred Frost is at it again. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. Closing bell, 3 p.m. Eastern. Halftime's back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, 
The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, Pete, we got to be kind of quick today. Unusual activity. What do you have for us? Sure. This is a Mike Wilson sort of a name where we're talking about reasonable valuation. We're looking at Kraft Heinz, 13 PE. They're rolling from December, buying January, buying the January 14th expiring 36 calls. Scott, 10,000 of those for 54 cents. Pretty interesting to see that. A lot of activity in this particular name. Also seeing some call activity in Uber. 4,200 of the December 37 calls. Stock was trading right around 37 at the time. So seeing those calls getting bought as well as the 38 strike calls December 23rd expiring. So a lot of activity in both these two names. All right. Good stuff, Pete. Thank you. Jim Cramer's Charitable Trust is active in the market, buying more of a specific stock. It's up almost 40 percent this year. We're going to tell you what it is. It's also trimming this stock, which is up almost 30 percent this year. Most of our committee members disagree on that move, which is why we're going to debate it next. All right, we mentioned ahead of the break that Jim Cramer's Charitable Trust is making some moves, trimming Walmart, adding Chevron. The more significant one for the terms of our conversation today, though, is the mystery chart. He's trimming Cisco. This happened yesterday. Um, Still likes the stock, says he's pretty torn on Cisco because it's the type of stock that can work in this market. It's the opposite of a high-flying, unprofitable, quote-unquote, conceptual company, he says. As much as we like the characteristics, though, we believe it is still prudent to trim our position and lock in some gains. Jim Labenthal, you own Cisco. What do you think about this move? Well, first off, I'm chuckling at what he said because it's a value stock, right? And you don't generally get value stocks in technology. That kind of makes it special here. Look, I, from what you said, it sounds like he really doesn't want to trim it, and I don't think he should, but he's his own boss. Um, that The stock had a bad quarter, but it had a bad quarter because of supply chain issues, which so far every company in the last year that has had a bad quarter because of supply chain issues has seen the problem rectify in the, last, in the next one or two quarters, which is likely to be the case with Cisco. And in the meantime, you've got great demand for its products, whether it's the hardware as CapEx keeps going on or security or the subscription software. So I think you're really supposed to own this stock and and not trim it. Yeah. I mean, remember, he he said it's the opposite of all those kinds of stocks that he thinks could get slammed as as, as what the in what the Fed does. Um, But all that said, it's maybe time to to trim the position a bit. Pete, you disagree. You own the shares, too. 
Yeah, I absolutely disagree. I understand why, though, that Jim is making this move, but I, I still think you, you need to hold on to this name. When you look at the fact that they've got double the cash versus the debt, you've got a great fundamental story here, and you've got the demand, as Jim was just pointing out, and you look at the free cash flow. The, every box gets checked on this name, and so because of that, I think there were other names that I would probably have gone to first before I'd go and trim this name. What about you, Steph? You, you own it, too. Uh, yeah, I own it because enterprise spend recovery is just starting to recover. We, we saw it last week with Broadcom. We saw it with HPE. We saw it with Dell. Cisco had a very good quarter, as the guys just mentioned. Good visibility. 33% product order growth. 200% order growth in cloud. 46% order growth in commercial and 30% in enterprise. If that's not visibility, I don't know what is. And yeah, operating margins and gross margins were guided lower, but that is supply chain. They put prices, uh, price increases in place already. So they're in good shape for 2022. Well, let's be clear, too. He took it down by a, about a, a half a percent in terms of the weighting in his portfolio. Jim is listening uh, to the other Jim, Farmer Jim. He says, you're right, Jim. This is on Twitter. He says, you're right, Jim. I really didn't want to sell it. We still have a lot of Cisco, but we like Chevron, cheaper and a better yield. Cisco missed the last two quarters. So at least you have that. And that's a response from Jim Cramer to Farmer Jim Labenthal. Final trades next. All right, the Linkster first. What's your final trade? Darden. Um, it's had a nice year, up 28%, but trades at 19 times, and it gives you a 3% yield. Casual dining total addressable market is $195 billion, and they are taking market share. Expect a good quarter this Friday. All right, we talked about those other restaurant calls. Darden wasn't on that list, but it's on yours, and that was, that's what matters most. Steph, thanks. The good farmer, Jeff. Farmer Jimmy. <laughs> Well, this is I'm planting an early seed here with Bristol Myers uh, to say that the stock has been difficult this year is an understatement. But I think yesterday's dividend increase in share repurchase, and it's a pretty big share repurchase, more than 10 percent of the market cap, is the potential catalyst that it is now going to break out and continue to break out as a result of. So Bristol Myers. Squib. All right, Pete. You know how I love those financials. I'm just looking at AIG, and I haven't seen this in a long time, Scott, but we just had a buyer of AIG. They're buying the December calls right where the stock is trading right now. I like what I'm seeing there. I haven't had a chance to buy it yet, but I will probably be in those calls before the end of the day, no doubt in my mind. I like what I'm seeing here. Yeah, looking at the stock as we speak about that. Thanks, Pete. Josh Brown. Yep. I can't believe nobody's talking about this. It's the biggest breakout in the whole market. Berkshire Hathaway B shares printed a record high in late May, early June of this year, spent the rest of the year consolidating. We are about to close if we go out here at the highest closing price okay. of all time in Berkshire B shares. What's in this? Industrials, financials, two of the best sectors right now. I would be long here. All right. Thanks, everybody. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel